Amen. Thank you. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles back to Mark chapter 13. For the last three times that we have come together, we have been dealing with the issues surrounding the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. I have told you that there are two predominant views regarding the correct interpretation of this passage. And if you are new with us, this is the fourth in the series of those messages. And by way of review, let me remind you of what those two predominant views regarding this passage are. First, there are those who understand Mark chapter 13 with a view that is commonly called the preterist view. Preterism being simply a word in Latin that means past. And this particular view and those who hold it see almost all, but not absolutely all, of Mark chapter 13 as having already occurred. That's why it has the view past. That is, they believe that most of what Jesus is prophesying here in this chapter was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I have repeatedly said in this series that this preterist view has much for which I can commend. There is, however, another view, and that is what is commonly called futurism, or the futurist view, a belief, of course, that's on the other side of this continuum. This view says that some of Mark 13 has been fulfilled, but that it is largely yet to be fulfilled even future to the time in which we are presently living. Those who call themselves either amillennialists or postmillennialists are considered preterists. Amillennialists, of course, say that there is no particular millennium, no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. That's a figurative way of saying the reign of God, the rule of the kingdom of God as God comes. The post-millennialist says that the gospel will so pervade society and time that ultimately we as Christians will, such, will, will give such a predominant explosion of the gospel message that ultimately we as his servants will vanquish his foes by his spirit and through his word and ultimately we will give the kingdom to Christ when he comes. In other words, it will be post-millennial. Those two major positions see preterism in Mark chapter 13. In other words, they see that these events are what God did in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, there are, of course, a lot more to amillennialism and postmillennialism than just being a preterist, but largely those are the two camps in which preterism is now thriving in Christianity. Now, those who would consider themselves futurists include two of the positions that are commonly held. One of them is called historic premillennialism, and the other dispensational premillennialism. You say, what are those? Well, 
If you are a premillennialist, you believe, for instance, that Mark 13 is yet future, or most of it, because you believe that Jesus Christ will return before actually setting up a 1,000-year literal reign of this Christ, this Messiah, on the earth. Normally, uh, historic premillennialists believe that while Christ is coming before this 1,000-year reign of Christ, they would say that the church is now spiritual Israel. That is, all of those blessings that you find in the Old Testament, all of those prophecies which speak of a literal land, of a physical fulfillment, of a covenant promise by God, that that is all fulfilled in the church now today, spiritually speaking, because the Jews rejected their Messiah, as they clearly did, and because of that, all of the covenant promises of God to bless a people with a land full of milk and honey, a land of blessing, a land of promise, that all of those things are now being fulfilled, spiritually speaking, in the church. That is, they had a literal fulfillment to the nation of Israel in the old covenant, and if they were to be faithful to such things, they would receive it literally. They rejected Messiah, and so now they are forever rejected by God as a national people, there are, of course, uh, those Jews, spiritually speaking, who believe in Messiah, who believe in Jesus Christ. Some people call them completed Jews because they have looked upon their Messiah, they've believed on Him. And because God is now working in the church because of the Jews' rejection of their Messiah, then both Jews and Gentiles are to be one spiritually in the church now, receiving all the blessings of what the Old Testament promised. That's a historic premillennialist. He still believes in Christ ruling and reigning in a literal way in Jerusalem for a thousand years on the earth and that all of those promises that God has given will be fulfilled explicitly and forever in this millennial kingdom. Dispensational premillennialists say, while I agree with you that Christ returns in a literal way in, in a 1,000 year fashion by physically ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, I also believe that since God gave the Jews a literal fulfillment of the curses in the Old Testament, that spiritually speaking, He's also going to give to that people, the nation Israel, Jews both physically and spiritually, the blessings that He has promised them. It's not simply going to be fulfilled in the church only, but it's also going to be fulfilled to the Jews as a national people in the millennial kingdom and God's promises will then be fulfilled and he will be seen as the one who has kept his promises both physically and spiritually. Now that's a very, very shorthand version of explaining to you the various millennial positions. Now you might say to yourself, what's the difference? Who cares? What does it matter? And the answer is, it matters a great deal because we're talking about the Word of the living God. And we're talking about the opportunity to understand as much as we can in a mirror dimly, I grant you that, but as much as we can understand on this earth what these passages mean. How are they to be interpreted? Now, if you just heard my last sentence, you would understand the crux of this chapter, indeed all of the preacher's duty to communicate the Word of God, and that is the word that I used, interpretation. Sometimes that word is called hermeneutics. 
That is, the science and art of biblical interpretation. How do I interpret the Bible accurately? And I might say at the outset of this fourth message, the way a person approaches Mark 13, as well as other prophetic literature, is the key that unlocks the camp or the view to which you are in. You say, I'm not in any of those. As I said a couple of weeks ago, a weeks ago some people say, I'm a pan-millennialist. I just believe it'll all pan out in the end. I don't know what I believe. It's too hard. Every time I try to think about this, my head hurts. And then I take a nap until it goes away. Well, I suggest that when you wake up, that you go back to your Bible and continue to study because it is extremely important. The way you interpret prophecy, and by the way, prophecy makes up a huge huge percentage of the Bible, the way you understand prophecy is the way that you're going to understand other vital doctrines of the Christian faith. You cannot have a non-eschatology, that is final things, and then try to have a workable ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. can't happen. I just told you that historic premillennialists have an eschatology but it also bleeds over into their ecclesiology, their view of the church, and whether or not it is distinct from Israel. Likewise, dispensational premillennialism, it has an eschatology, and that very definitely affects their ecclesiology, their view of the church, their view of final things, and their view of how the church is to be in this world. And believe it or not, amillennialists and postmillennialists, they have an eschatology which also affects their ecclesiology as well, very definitely so. In other words, how you interpret prophecy will largely define what eschatological position you hold. For instance, if you believe that there is much more continuity, and you remember I said that last time, that was one of my major outline points, if you believe in much continuity between the relationship of the Old and New Covenants, then you tend to, to blend more of your views into the preterist camp. In other words, if you believe that there is less distinction between the Old and New Testaments, then you tend to be a preterist. If, however, you see more of a distinction between the Old and New Testaments, between the Old and New Covenants, then you tend toward a futurist position. That's just the way it is. And so much of this has a relationship to what you believe about Old Testament prophecy and how it's to be fulfilled in the New Testament. And believe me, as I've been studying these things, in order to present them to you, there are many sticky wickets, as the British would say. Many of them. Many difficult things. It makes you want to stay up all night trying to figure out what these verses mean because you're scared to death to stand up in front of people and say, Thus saith the Lord. Or if you do, you want to say this, I believe, I assume, I lean, it's possible not trying to die the death of a thousand qualifications, mind you, but trying your best to do what exegesis and hermeneutics suggest that we do, and that's dig into the Word of God to try to find out what it means by what it says. Now, I told you last time, when we finished all of the preemptory matters, all of the introductory issues about our presuppositions and where we are and where we're going, I told you that I will declare on the front end my position. You have to. There's no way around it. There's no way for you to say, this is how I interpret Mark 13, and I've never heard anybody else, and I've never read anything else, and I don't believe anything. My mind is a complete blank slate, and I just go to Mark 13, and I'm going to come out either a preterist 
or a futurist. That's not going to happen. None of us do that. We all come to the text with our presuppositions. You say, what is yours? I'll tell you. I am, and someone asked me this recently, they said, uh, based on not only this study, but based on other things you've said from the pulpit, I can't figure out what you are. And I said to myself, well, I guess there's probably something good in that, because maybe I'm not just rigidly following a system. I try to come to these passages, and I try to harmonize them as much as I can, not with a system, but with what I understand all of the passages together to teach me. What am I? Here's what I am. I'm what I call a Calvinistic, futuristic, premillennialist. You say, what is that? Well, first of all, I am Calvinistic. That means that I believe in what are commonly called the doctrines of grace. You say, what are the doctrines of grace? The doctrines of grace are that man is totally depraved, that God sees man in that condition, and God, out of his sheer goodness and grace, elects some to salvation. He chooses to leave others as they are in their Christ-rejecting sinful condition, and he, by his prevenient grace, by his lovely grace, by his altogether sufficient grace, takes those and he irresistibly draws them to himself because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot respond to God on their own. God grants, grants them faith and repentance, and he allows us the privilege of coming into his kingdom based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone, plus or minus nothing, and when that happens, God gives me this grace that I then are, am allowed by him to persevere through the faith because he preserves me in that faith and he brings me everlastingly to a glorified state in heaven forever with him. Well, that was a lot. Did I breathe in there? That means that I don't believe, as Arminians normally teach, that I am the captain of my own salvation. I'm the one who chooses Christ. Ultimately, I'm responsible to choose Christ, but when I am able to see that responsibility, I'm able to see it in this way. God has granted me such a thing, therefore it exalts His grace, not my choosing, and if I receive it, it is only as a result of what He's done in me, not anything I've done myself. That's Calvinism. That's what it teaches. That's what I am. I'm unashamedly that. If you're not that, it's not a problem. You can worship here. It's not, it's not ultimately an issue. It's not an issue for which we'd break fellowships. Surely not. If you are something different than that, that's okay. You just keep coming and listening and learning, and then you come and you teach me what you know, and maybe I might change. I don't think I will, but I'm open. Furthermore, I am a futurist. That means I'm not a historic premillennialist because I believe there is validly in the plan of God a future for the nation of Israel as a people. I believe that God will ultimately bless Israel the people, both the physical people called Jews, not all those, of course, because not all Jews uh, are those who receive Christ. Some of them will reject Christ and they will be cast off. But there will be those who are physically in the line or lineage of being a Jew, and they are also spiritually, by God's grace again, Jews by their circumcision of the heart. 
Not, not just some physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. God has given them the faith and repentance to believe, and He will bless them and will ultimately bless them with a land that He promised in the Old Testament, uh, a people that He will bless. His callings and gifts are irrevocable according to Paul, and I believe that means that physically they'll receive that blessing in a millennial kingdom in a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. That's why I'm a premillennialist as well. Now, that's how I'm going to work my way through this passage. But, having declared to you how I'm going to approach this passage, I need to say to you as well that I depart, and it seems to me uh, okay to do so, and still call myself what I just labeled me, as a person who departs from some of what that camp normally interprets this passage to say. In other words... I believe that much of what Mark 13 is saying is talking about a destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., much of it. But I also hasten to say that much of it is referring to a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ futuristically, physically, and spiritually. And that is not sort of the normal line of how dispensational premillennialists interpret this passage. But I do, and it's as a result of what I believe is the greater grasp of this text. I'm not saying I have a greater mind. I'm not saying I have a greater handle. I'm saying as I grapple with the text, these are the ways that I approach it and interpret it. For instance, one who is like myself, a futuristic premillennialist and who also is Calvinistic, is John Feinberg, and he says something very interesting, and you need to listen. He says this, New Testament application of the Old Testament passage does not necessarily eliminate the passage's original meaning. In other words, what he's saying is, when there is a promise in the Old Testament, when it's fulfilled spiritually in the church, clearly there are passages that say that. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 2 says about Christians, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And when you look up where those passages come from, they're in the Old Testament, and they're referring to the Jewish people, not the church. Now, if... If you were a staunch, dispensational premillennialist, you would say, I have to work around that passage because clearly that's a reference to the church in 1 Peter 2. No one argues with that. How do I see that? Because clearly not every passage in the Old Testament is meant only for the church. There are some that are clearly different. There are some that even seem to go beyond a reference to the church and apply to something even yet future. John Feinberg says, that's what I believe. He says, no New Testament writer claims his new understanding of the Old Testament passage cancels the meaning of the Old Testament passage in its own context, or that the new application is the only meaning of the Old Testament passage. In other words, if, if there's prophecy in the Old Testament, and God says this is what's going to happen, and we find a New Testament fulfillment of that, which he predicted was going to happen through the Old Testament prophet, it doesn't mean that that particular fulfillment cancels out the Old Testament passage. It doesn't mean that it fulfills it in total. It may very well be fulfilled there, and it may have also a fulfillment yet in the future also. It doesn't seem to me to be any reason why we would say that if it is fulfilled in one place, then that's all and only the place it is to be fulfilled. doesn't seem to me to be any hermeneutical reason to say that. 
It goes on to say, the New Testament writer merely offers a different application of an Old Testament passage than the Old Testament might have foreseen. In other words, there are some of those Old Testament passages which clearly the prophet himself had no clue about a church. They had no clue that that's what it was referring to, at least in part. And there are some times within an Old Testament prophecy that one section of the prophecy meant something to the Jews and something else in the prophecy meant something for the church. And I'd like to submit that there might even be a third aspect of the same prophecy that could be referring to both the Jews and the church in the future in the same prophecy. You say, what, that, what is that called? I might call that either double or multiple fulfillment. You say, what is that? That's simply the idea that the Old Testament, as it prophesies things to occur, it could have happened five years later to the Jews themselves. It could have had a fulfillment in the church. It could have a fulfillment also even after this age in a millennial kingdom. It could even have an ultimate fulfillment in the eternal state of the believer with both Jews and Gentiles. It could have multiple fulfillments. It doesn't appear as though we have to say that it only has one application. You say, well, well, doesn't it mean, however, that when Jesus, for instance, prophesies here in Mark 13, that he's really referring only to one thing? Not necessarily. It could be, could be that he primarily is making a reference to Jerusalem and the destruction in 70 A.D., but he's not limited to such a thing. It could have multiple meanings. And I believe this is what appears to be happening here in Mark chapter 13. I want you to notice something. You remember last time when I said to you that the disciples asked two questions in verses 1 to 4 of Mark 13. We went over it in detail. I said that they asked question number one like this. What will be the sign that all these things be fulfilled? That is the destruction of the temple that Jesus you're pointing to and telling us that no stone will be upon another. It'll be ultimately decimated, destroyed. They say, when is this going to happen? And then secondly, when you group all of the gospel accounts together and Mark 13 has a parallel in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke chapter 21, the second question I believe from their lips to Jesus is, and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? I think that's a much different question. Now, it could be true that when they phrase the two questions together in such a precise and quick manner, that they, the Jews, the disciples themselves, assumed that what they were referring to was both the destruction of the temple, since their whole life was the temple, and immediately the signs of your coming in the end of the age. That could very well be true also. What's the end? Because if the temple is the end, then everything is coming to an end, and certainly something's going to happen that would usher in the end of the age. It could be that also. I have no difficulty with that. But I say that I believe that there are two distinct yet similar questions here. And I believe that Jesus in Mark 13 is answering both of those questions. I think he's answering with what we could call a near fulfillment. That is, what he is saying is going to happen to the very disciples and the generation to whom Jesus is physically and sightfully referring when he points to the temple. And yet I think there's also a far fulfillment there's something going beyond what the disciples even envisioned, and that was the second coming glory of Jesus Christ physically to the earth. 
even though they didn't, and none of us would have ever assumed that almost 2,000 years would have separated the answers to those two questions. But they have. In my judgment, they have. So, they asked the first question. What are the signs that all these things are going to be fulfilled? That is, the destruction of the temple and the things that you're speaking about there. Jesus gives them, in verses 5 to 13, four signs. Four signs. Number one, and I've alliterated them for you so that you can know them quite well. The first is false messiahs. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. That's verses 5 and 6. In other words, Jesus' direct answer to the question, what are the signs that are going to signal the destruction of this temple that you just pointed to? And he said the first one is false messiahs. The first thing that Jesus prophesies is the fact that he himself will said to be coming again, but not by himself personally, but by those who are masquerading as pseudo-messiahs and pseudo-prophets. In other words, when you see people coming to you as though they are the Messiah, a would-be Messiah, someone who is speaking in my name, he says. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. They're going to mislead you. The end is not yet. I'm simply talking about the temple destruction. I'm not talking about the end of the world as we know it. I'm simply telling you that as soon as you begin to see these false messiahs and false prophets, that is a sign of the end, but it's only the very, very, very beginning of the end. Don't be misled. Don't assume that a false messiah is going to come, say that he's me, Jesus of Nazareth, or say that he's working in my name, and then you believe frightfully and you believe hurtfully to your soul spiritually that you believe that the end is right there. He says, don't be deluded. In fact, notice what he says. He uses the word blepite, means look, see to it. It means to watch out for, to be warned about, to be vigilant. And you know, one of the interesting things about this chapter is that he continues to say that. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard. Verse 23, but take heed. And it goes on and on like that. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 35, therefore be on the alert. Verse 37, I say, be on the alert. In other words, it's linked with the matter of discernment. Discern the signs of the times, men. And when you hear people coming and you know that they're false prophets, false messiahs, they're trying to say they speak the truth and it may even look good on the external level, don't buy it. Don't believe it. It's only a sign that the end has begun. The beginning of the end has come. Don't be deluded. Don't assume the external claims of the false for the true, the real from the persuasive words and deceptive signs. Notice what he says in verses 21 and 22. And therefore, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Wow. 
But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Don't buy it. They'll say, I am he. And what's their purpose for claiming these things? Well, remember the context. They are attempting to lead people to believe that the end of the world has come. You know, that's one of the oldest lines in the book. If someone can convince you that the end of the world is upon us, then you are much more likely to follow them, right? If you're concerned about your soul, if you're concerned about your family, if you're concerned about your material goods, if you're concerned about the world itself, if you're concerned about all of those kinds of things, and they are able to convince you that they are the true Messiah, come from God, you're much more likely to listen to them. And Jesus says, watch out. I like what he says in Luke 21.8. See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. And what will be their effect on people? He says they will mislead many. They will become so very effective, so much so that they will mislead a whole host of people. And this is... This is so clear. Right during this time, here's what Matthew chapter 7 says when Jesus also prophesied. Notice what he says. Matthew chapter 7. Listen to these words. Verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree, tree bear, bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, now listen to this, listen to these grandiose claims. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That was happening so much at the time. It was so commonplace that Jesus says, sign number one, men, is that there'll be a lot of false messiahs, a lot of pseudo-prophets, a lot of people saying, we're prophesying in Christ's name, we're doing miracles in Christ's name, and he does not deny that the signs and the wonders appear to be there. He does not deny that. He never says, you didn't do those things. They may have done what looks on the outside like miraculous signs and wonders, but they did it for their own greed, for their own life, for their own pleasure, and they want to snare you. They want to make you their prey. And he says, don't listen to them. I mean, even the Bible gives a name for a couple of them. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, listen to this. For some time ago, Thaddeus, or Thudis, rose up, Claiming to be somebody. I love that. Claiming to be somebody. Hey, I'm somebody. Listen to me. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. That's a good-sized church, isn't it? They just joined up with him. But he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. See, they were trying to size up what this Christianity was. They are trying to size up whether Jesus was just another pseudo-Messiah. It's really amazing. There was another one in Acts chapter 8. You remember him, Simon? 
Now there was a man named Simon, Simon Magus, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him. Isn't that amazing? From smallest to greatest. I mean, he was doing some chicanery, some magic act, making it look like it was spiritual and religious. And boy, there were people following him. In fact, here's what they said. This man is what is called the great power of God. This is astonishing. And they were giving him attention because he had a long time astonished them with his magic arts. In other words, it wasn't true. He was just doing uh, illusions, tricks, false things. Even John the Apostle, does he not say in 1 John 2, 18, and there will be many, many antichrists come out in the world. Sure. There are always going to be those people. And Jesus says, this is a sign. Watch out. Now you say, well then, how does the preterist understand these things? Well, the preterist would say, all of the examples that you've just given, Lance, that proves our point, that this is exactly what Jesus was referring to. All of these people, the people you've mentioned and many others. In fact, even the Jewish historian Josephus records exactly what was happening in this days. Listen to him. In Judea, matters were constantly going from bad to worse, for the country was again infested with bands of brigands and impostors who deceived the mob. He says in his book on the Jewish wars, deceivers and impostors under the pretense of divine inspiration fostering revolutionary changes, they persuaded the multitude to act like madmen and led them out into the, de into the desert under the belief that God would there give them tokens of deliverance. That's a historical fact. And so the preterists would say, I don't have to go to anything futuristically, it's all right there. This is a perfect fulfillment. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to. And they can find ample evidence in history that these are a reference that was a precursor to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Here's my response. I agree. I have no issue with that. I have no problem with that. I agree with that. I think it's true. He was speaking about the very temple that he pointed to. He was speaking about the very people who no doubt were living at that time or who would be living about 40 years later when this destruction occurred. And they were drawing people after themselves. And Jesus says, watch out for them. That's not the end. It's the beginning of the end, but watch out. But could it also be another fulfillment? Could it be that, yes, a primary reference? But could it also be another reference? You say, what might that reference be? It could also be the very reference of the mention in the Bible of the ultimate Antichrist. Now, that's where a preterist would say, no, no, no. You're reading way too much into that. Am I? What valid reason would there be to suggest that that is not valid? I don't see it. Jesus could very well have said what he said about Jerusalem, and it could also have another application that we are yet going to see if we live that long. It may even be that we die and those after us could be our children, could be our children's children. But at some point, there's going to be someone who says that they are the Messiah, that they are the Christ, and he's not just going to be some wannabe Messiah, some pseudo-prophet. It's going to be the ultimate false prophet. It's going to be the Antichrist himself. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want you to see this because this, my friends... I think is a very valid way 
of looking at what happened in Jerusalem, which is past, and that which is happening still yet in the future with this man, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Look at verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Boy, I see a powerful link there. You remember in Luke 21? Be careful, there are going to be those who say, I am He, and He's a false Messiah, and He's going to say, the time is near. And Paul's saying the same thing. Watch out now, there are those who are going to say to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Talking about a man, a specific man, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. You see that? That's someone who's claiming he's God. He's, he's the deliverer. Do you not remember that I was, while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, there are already a lot of antichrists around. There are a lot of people who would be claiming a lot of things. He's the ultimate one, but the time has already begun. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Possibly a reference to the Holy Spirit restraining evil in the world, restraining even the, the coming of the lawless one, but maybe sometime he will not. And the Holy Spirit will take that restraint off and the Antichrist himself will be around. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by his appearance of his coming. That is, the one, whom, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. You see that? And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they will all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. In other words, those who don't believe will believe even less. They'll be given a deluding influence. That to me, my friends, sounds like a possible future fulfillment that Jesus might very well be referring to here. Not in its primary sense, I grant you that, but in a secondary way, this may also be talking about the one who is the ultimate pseudo-prophet. Number two, not just false messiahs do we see in verses 5 and 6, but in verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, we see fighting military. Fighting military. Not just false messiahs, but a fighting military. The second sign Jesus tells us is this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What does he say? There'll be a second sign, and it'll be, no doubt, military personnel, men who are fighting machines, those who will fight battles. He says, again, these things are simply a prelude. It's not the end, but it certainly is one of the things that begins the end. 
Don't be alarmed at the wars and the rumors of wars that you see around you. These things are the mere beginnings of birth pains. In other words, when a person, when a woman goes into labor, the very moment she goes into labor doesn't mean the deliverance. The labor pains signal the beginning of the end, but it isn't the end. Now, some of you ladies are a lot closer from the beginning of the labor pains. Some of you have a long period of time. Maybe you're analogous to the long time in between the destruction of Jerusalem and 2,000 years hence. I'm not asking you to think about that when you're in labor. I'm just saying this could be you. When a woman goes into labor, she isn't at that very moment delivering a baby. The labor must come first and then the delivery. This is all a part of the end, but the pangs are not the totality of the end. Now, one of the reasons why I think Jesus is calling for extreme caution here is the fact that many wars and rumors of wars have been throughout the centuries, right? I mean, what is he specifically referring to here? Because there are wars and rumors of wars at all times. I mean, you could see in this prophecy a fulfillment a hundredfold because there are going to be wars and rumors of war to the end. And even with the Jewish people, there have been wars and rumors of war. What might he be referring to? Well, I think the preterist is probably on a good track here. They historically prove that when Augustus Caesar uh, took over the rulership of the Roman world, there was a period of about mm, 17 B.C. on and through even Jesus' time called the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. Uh, there was much less a period in that part of the world where there were wars and rumors of war. In fact, there might have been what we could call a very, very peaceful time without a lot of war and bloodshed. And so... Here's Jesus coming along and saying, Men, you see this temple here? It's going to be as a result not of Pax Romana, but as a result of destruction to you, the Jews, because you've rejected me as Messiah. The Pax Romana is over. One of the writers again of the day said, Tacitus, the history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors failed by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. In other words, when Jesus prophesied that in 66 AD, at least for sure, all the way up to 70 AD in the final destruction, there was a war of all wars, at least as far as they knew it up to that time. It was an incredible war. Did you know that if you study the history books, during that destruction of Jerusalem and the years preceding and succeeding it, that there were over one million Jews who were killed? One million. I mean, they have been a people who have been oppressed and beaten down far more than any other people on the face of the earth. Do you remember the Holocaust? Do you remember all of the atrocities before and after? One million Jews were killed here. Now you say, yes, but those wars were not as incredible and not as devastating as our own World War I or World War II. That's true, at least in terms of the number of people. But for a city, for Jerusalem, for in its own environment, this was an incredible war. One million people? Boy, this is, this is a prophecy that is right on the mark. Hey, and 
Here's one thing that I was talking with someone about. Whether we agree on preterism or futurism, one thing is for sure, Jesus is a prophet. And whether we agree that it was fulfilled in the past or it's fulfilled in the future or some element of both, Jesus is right on the mark. Whatever it is and whatever the fulfillment is, even if I'm dead wrong or even if you're dead wrong, ultimately what really matters is that Jesus is a prophet and someday we're going to find out. There is, I guess, ultimately a pan-millennialism for all of us. We're all going to find out what the truth is. But I think, I surmise, I wonder, I hope, now that it's on tape, <laughs> that there is something else here. What is it? Well, notice. I believe... It appears to me that after this period of wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, that there'll be another war. There'll be a more devastating war. There'll be a war that's beyond all wars. Notice what is said, verse 19. Those days, whatever days those are, will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Now I know that preterists say that is language that speaks of hyperbole. And there is certainly that valid use of that kind of language in the Bible. Jesus used it. Hyperbolic language, sure. And it could be that for those people that was the greatest, most devastating war that will ever be. Sure, it could mean that. In fact, I think for them it did mean that. For one million Jews, it certainly meant their death, the ultimate struggle. But I think it also means, by the language of verse 19, that it seems to me this tribulation is something that's speaking not locally, but globally. That this is a tribulation that has not ever occurred until now and never will. You say, when will that be? Well, verse 24 might give me a clue. But in those days, that is, those days where all of these signs are happening, in those days, something's going to happen, and I'm telling you what they are. And then, notice this, after that tribulation. He says, that tribulation leads me to assume that what he's referring to is a tribulation that is the tribulation. The great tribulation, we could call it. And I tell you that I think that is talking about the time when there is a great war, a war that is so devastating. Revelation 7 talks about it. Revelation 16 talks about it. Revelation 19 talks about it. I think that is the great tribulation. I believe it'll be global. I believe there'll be wars and rumors of wars to a degree and nation against nation and people against people that we have never known before in the history of the world. See, so how can you be so sure? I'm just trying to understand these passages. Just trying to grapple with them. And it seems to me that this is what it's speaking about. When I read in my Bible 
In Revelation chapter 19, these words, it seems to me that we're talking about something that goes far beyond a 70 A.D. fulfillment. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, speaking obviously about Christ. And the army which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and treads the winepress of the, uh, winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's what I think is happening here in Mark 13. I think this is a reference to that. I think this is a great conflagration. I think this is a great tribulation. I think this is far beyond what Jerusalem ever was. You say, could you be wrong? Of course I could. But what if I'm right? What if it's coming? You say, well, there's something you haven't talked about. What about the person who's the pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialist? You see, you believe that you'll be raptured away from this Maybe so, but maybe not. You say, what do you believe? Well, since the Bible doesn't give explicitly the timing of the rapture, nowhere does it give it, only the fact of it, but never explicitly the timing of it, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We can assume there are inferences. We don't know. You say, what's your position? I'm a pan-tribulationist. <laughs> Here's what I tell people, and I'm serious when I say it, even though it sounds funny. I am praying for pre-tribulationalism, but I am working for post-tribulationalism. That's why I warn you. That's why Jesus is warning you here. We better arm ourselves with the truth of the Word of God and even physical persecution if it comes, and we'll go into that next time, because the tribulation may be what we go through. Could be. I pray that it isn't. I pray that this great devastation, this great tribulation will come and I with you, if you know Jesus Christ, will not be here. But I don't want to bank my life on it. I want to work and I want to pray and I want to work and pray and work and pray so that my life is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that in the end, if I and you are the leaders as we live here, not bowing the knee to the Antichrist, if that happens to you and me, and if we're one of those martyred saints, one of those that says, how long, O Lord, will you allow, allow this to go? He'll say, be patient. Be patient. The end is coming. Beloved, this is the kind of message for which not only is pan-millennialism not in vogue, but there's the utmost of vigilance, the utmost of being aware, of looking, of knowing what's going on. I don't know when this time is going to come. And that's why in the imminent return of Christ, none of us know, and so we all must be ready. That's why the 
virgins in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. The virgins, five were prepared because they had their oil, the oil of the Holy Spirit. They were prepared and five were not. And the five were not. They were around town doing anything they want to do. They were sleeping. They were not on guard. They were not alert. And what happened was when the bridegroom came and the five who had their oil, five who were prepared went into the door and the five who did not, the Bible says the door was shut. Shut. And they said, Lord, open to us. And he says, I shall not. I never knew you. I never had any intimacy with you. I never had any relationship with you. You're unprepared. Oh, beloved people, don't be unprepared. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't bowed your knee to His Lordship, if you haven't said yes to Him and no to your sin, if you haven't placed your confidence and trust in Christ and Him alone, you're unprepared. And it could be today. It could be tonight. None of us know. Be prepared. Watch out. Beware. Be vigilant. Oh, Father, we want most assuredly to be prepared. How can we know how can we be assured of what and when these signs are occurring? Well, if this text is telling us what happened long ago, it's surely telling us now, look at that and beware. If devastation could come upon them like that, it could come upon you as well if you are not prepared. Oh, Father, I pray for everyone here that they would prepare their lives by placing their complete trust and confidence alone in Christ and what He's done in dying upon that cross. That song that we sang, the joy of the Lord is my strength because I've been forgiven and that because Christ has been sacrificed for me. Oh Lord, I pray that none of us would walk from this place unprepared, not having the, the oil of the protection of the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit, but being sleepy, being careless, saying, I'm going my own way, I'm doing my own thing. Lord, make it not so in the lives of the unprepared. Crash into their hearts. Foil their wicked schemes by the persevering work and the drawing power of the Holy Spirit and the cross of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.